a joy to be here this morning to see um, bright faces this early in the morning. We start a little bit later on Wednesdays, and so um, it's encouraging to me to see so many of you up and awake, at least half awake. Hopefully, uh, within the next couple minutes, you'll be fully awake. As we begin, um, I'd like to start with some questions for you to ponder. I'd like for you to think back over your time in the Word this last week. As you opened up God's Word, did you do it expectantly? Did you long for God to reveal Himself to you? Did you simply read? Or did you spend time fellowshipping with your Savior? Did you remember and thank God that you were coming to Him as a new creation in Christ? And did you thank Him for the new desires that He's given to you to even be in His Word? Were you reminded that sin is no longer your master and worship Him as your new master? At the same time, did you remember the battle that's going on in your heart? Desiring to love God, to honor Him, yet aware of that lingering sin that still dwells in us. Did, as you thought of that lingering sin, did that give you an even greater desire to feed your new heart? so that you would be greater equipped to fight against that sin. As you read, were you aware of how easily your heart can become cold and the danger that lies in it? And did you remember the cross and all that Christ has accomplished for us? Did that leave you desiring to draw nearer to him? Asking him to show you the sin that so easily entangles you and being committed to fight hard against it. Remembering that he has given you everything that you need for life and for godliness. And then when you finished and you closed your Bible, did you come away prepared to be diligent in shepherding your heart throughout the day? Or was it more like you just got one thing checked off your to-do list for the day? I know that for myself, I need to remind myself every time I open up God's Word of the great opportunities that I have there to meet with my Savior, to be reminded of His character so that when things bombard my day, my response will flow out of my time with Him. Remembering who he is and how much I can trust him for whatever he allows in my day. That he has already provided everything that I need to glorify him in it. So go ahead and turn over your notebooks. See, the questions that I've asked you to ponder are really just another way of helping us understand our purpose in meeting together. We gather to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God 
so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. It's been a little over two months since you've started Wellspring and since we've started a Bible reading plan so that we get into all of God's word. I pray, I pray that it's becoming a habit for you to be reading his word daily and yet not just reading it, but to be careful that we really are meeting with Jesus as we do. Thankful that he has equipped us to pursue him and understanding how desperately we need him. Is that true for you? Or has this discipline been hard? Are you starting to have trouble keeping up? Galatians 6, 9 tells us, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. If you're starting to feel overwhelmed because you're not keeping up, you're getting behind in your reading, or maybe if there's no joy in it, or no sweet times of fellowship with the Lord, because you feel guilty that you're not keeping up with the plan. How about letting today be a reset day? Just get out your plan and pick up where you left off. You will finish eventually if you don't give up. And if you're using a dated plan and you're one of those who gets stressed out from being behind, I know what that feels like. Just start reading for what's assigned today. Will you miss some things? Sure you will. But remember, we are aiming to, to cultivate a lifelong habit. Ten years from now, think about the kind of women we'll be. Having met with God over and over and over again. As you've read through the Bible, ten, twenty, for some of us, maybe thirty times. Think how much we'll know him better than we do today and how that will affect the way that we live. So please, wherever you are in your reading plan, don't be discouraged, especially if this is new for you. If this is the first time that you've tried to read through the Bible, let me encourage you to persevere in your time with the Lord. If you do, you will find that his word becomes more precious because it reveals him. That is what you've been cultivating over these last two months in Wellspring and what we want to continue to cultivate for the rest of our lives. Discipline number one, then, is to prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the word of God and, in particular, the gospel. When we understand the condition of our own hearts, that mixed condition, it makes us, at least it should, make us yearn for Jesus more. And it drives us to shepherd our heart back to God and to feed from his word. If we do, we will be overflowing with the God of the word over time. And we'll be ready to interact with others with wisdom and grace and humility so that they are spurred on in their pursuit of Christ. 
But ladies, that won't happen if we don't prayerfully meet with God as we read his word or if we neglect reading his word. If we are not consistently in his word, what are we going to have to say as we meet with people? Except maybe repeat a few things that we've learned maybe even months ago? Or repeat buzzwords that we've heard at church? Ladies, if we do that, that does nothing to contribute to our own growth or to the growth of the body. I hear a lot of talk about shepherding our hearts. And that's good. But let's make sure that we're not just using the phrase, but that we are actually diligent to prayerfully care for our our hearts. And then discipline number two, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Today, we are moving into discipline two. Not because we move away or move on from discipline number one and forget about our hearts. You get that, right? We never graduate from shepherding our hearts. But today, we're moving to discipline number two because the household is the first place where the gospel's work in our lives has an, has an opportunity and a responsibility to be displayed. Now I know that because of my own sinful heart, my home is often the place of my greatest failures and my greatest regrets. Even though it's not my desire, I know I can so easily become impatient with my husband or frustrated as I care for my elderly mom. Maybe some of you have strained or broken relationships with family members. You know what? We can be encouraged because that is what makes our homes such a perfect showcase for the gospel. It's there that the Lord desires to bring us to an end of ourselves to serve others so that he gets all of the glory for what he has done in us as we live out our faith in our homes. The gospel is that powerful. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? The gospel is that powerful to enable us to love the people we live with or are responsible for because God first loved us. Ladies, we must strive for this kind of love in our household. We need to plead with God to develop this kind of love, his love in our hearts. It won't just happen. No, we must labor and apply ourselves and take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love those in our households. And that leads us to discipline number three. With a heart for God and the gospel, And fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. If we are being faithful to shepherd our own hearts with God's word, then we will be useful instruments in the lives. Oh, excuse me. And we're being faithful to those in our household. Then we will be useful instruments in God's hand to minister to those beyond our households. 
if we are intentional, if we labor, if we are diligent about these disciplines, we will be women of integrity. We will be what we are wherever we are. See, we won't be one thing in private and then another thing at home and then something else at church and then something totally different at home or, I mean, at uh, work or at school. No, we will be the same woman wherever we go, whomever we come in contact with. We'll have something of value to contribute. The gospel will be on display. As others step into our homes, they will see that we are women who desire to honor God. So with that understanding, I want you to take out your outlines this morning. And we're going to look at the, at the home, a whole Bible survey of the home. Now this morning, we're going to, we're going to seek to gain a sense of what God thinks about household relationships. Because we need to align our thoughts about the household with God's thoughts about the household. It doesn't matter what we think, right? But rather, we must think as God thinks. And so we need to know what God says about marriage, what he says to parents and children, what he says to one generation about being concerned for the next generation. And ladies, can I remind you that this is important for all of us. You don't have to be married or to have children to be concerned about the next generation. God is concerned about what we're teaching the little ones in next generation ministries. He's concerned how we speak into the lives of those in student ministries. Even our influence when we babysit or with our grown children or our grandchildren. We all must be concerned for our household, whatever they may look like. As we will see, God has much to say in his word about the household. And it is our responsibility, all of us, to apply it to our home. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded, our household isn't always going to look like it does today. I've seen mine change a lot over the years. And so we need to listen intently to what God has to say so that we will know how to apply it in every season of our life. So this morning, we're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for household relationships. In some of these categories, we'll begin just like we did with um, the survey of the heart. We'll start in the Old Testament and then work our way forward into the New Testament. Again, the reason we do that is because God unfolds his relationship, uh, excuse me, his revelation to, uh, to us gradually. Okay, so we're going to look at what God said, what he gave to us early on, and then what he's given us later so that we gain a full sense of his heart. Now, as we do, we need to remember that we as Christians are not under the Mosaic law. Okay, we don't obey the command 
to honor your father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments. But we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15:4. In the same way, when we see Old Testament promises, we need to understand to whom those promises were given. We'll see promises in the very first passage that we look at. And we need to recognize that those promises were given to Israel. But that doesn't mean that there's no value in the Mosaic law to to us as New Testament believers. There's great value in it because it reveals God's heart. The Old Testament provides for us examples and it shows us the character of God. But when it comes to understanding what we are to do in regards to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reason, under Christ. We exalt Christ. He is greater than the Mosaic Law. So let's look at the first category, the relationship between the heart and household relationships. Let me turn to Exodus 20. And we're going to look at verse 12. This is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And verse 12 is the fifth commandment. The first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship with God. They're uh, vertical relationships. But here the commandments turn and become more specifically horizontal. They're focused on the human relationships. Verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So again, the first human relationship that God reveals to, with, excuse me, that God deals with here is the parent-child relationship. Okay, and then in verse 14, he says, You shall not commit adultery. Again, God is focused on the home. He's concerned about the husband-wife relationship. And then in verse 17, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household. When he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So Israel was to be very concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. So again, in the Ten Commandments, we see that the first thing God deals with in the first four commandments was how to relate rightly to him. And then the very next thing that he addresses is the household. Three times in the last six commandments. God had very specific expectations for the home as he was giving the Mosaic Law. He was thinking about household relationships. The home was on God's mind. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy 4, and we're going to look at verse 9. If you remember, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, but they rebelled and they wouldn't take possession of the land that God was giving them. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They weren't allowed to go into the land until the generation that rebelled died off. So now Moses is talking to their children, now grown up, 
who were told originally to honor their parents. So Moses is reteaching them the law before they enter into the promised land. Verse 9, he says, Only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eye has seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Hey, there's discipline one spelled out for Israel. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Do you see how God ties the heart to the home? Verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my word, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. The burden for the Israelite household was for the parents to make known to their children what God did in redeeming them from Egypt. So when God gave the old covenant in the wilderness, his intent was not just for that generation. All along, he had a view toward the coming generations. He was saying, this isn't just for you, You must also teach it to your children. And do you see how closely this follows on the heels of caring for their own souls? God's heart has always been that we would take care of our own heart and tell the things of the Lord to our children. So now let's go to Deuteronomy 6. This is the Shema, the Hebrew word to hear to listen and to obey. Start in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now listen for the connection. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God is saying, your household, Israel, is to be dominated by my word. There is an in separable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and tell them to your children. Discipline one, our heart, and discipline two, our household, are inseparable. Discipline one is to make an impact on discipline number two. Okay, that was specifically for Israel. But one way that we can apply the principle that's being taught here is to take something that we've learned from the Word as we spend time with the Lord and maybe write it out on a note card. I'm old-fashioned. That's how I do it. Three-by-five cards. For you, get it, put it on your phones. Whatever works for you. So that you can take that out, keep it with you during the day, and meditate on it throughout the day. See, we must Use God's word to prepare us to live out discipline number two. 
We can pray over whatever it is that we read, that we fellowshiped with the Lord in the morning, so that our heart is ready when our husbands come home, when your children wake up from their naps, when your roommate walks in the door, maybe when we care for aging parents, so that we are applying God's word to our hearts and so that we don't separate that our concern for our hearts, we don't separate that from caring for our household. Now let's turn to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. We're going to start in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists seven nations that are greater and stronger than them, And then the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them. Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. God is telling them that a generation who intermarries those of another god will have their hearts turned away from Yahweh. And the burden was on the mothers and on the fathers in Israel to shepherd their children in such a way that their children would not abandon Yahweh. As you've heard the disciplines taught week after week, you've seen that the condition of our hearts will impact our home. Okay? But here we see that the influence in the home will impact the heart. Do you see how it goes both ways? Now I want you to turn to Psalm 78. And we're going to read verses, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And as I do, I want you to listen for how many generations are referred to here. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And where did they learn these? Which you have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children. Okay, that's one generation. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers. Why? That they should teach them to their children. That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they might arise and tell them to their children. Okay, that's four generations. 
that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So, what's the main concern here? The next generation. They are to be told that God is trustworthy and that they can put their confidence in him and that they are to obey him and not be like their fathers. Verse 8, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not prepare its heart. They didn't shepherd their hearts and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now again, this was for Israel, but the principle is also for us as believers. There is an inseparable connection between our heart for God and our impact on the next generation. What we know about God will impact our household. And we are all responsible to pass on those truths to the next generation. Ladies, if we don't, who will? It is up to us. Now, let's go to Malachi. We're going to look at chapter 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. And here we find God telling Israel what will precede Christ's return. Start in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So what is being said here? God is saying, I am coming And I will bring my judgment on those who don't know me. I don't want to smite the land with a curse. So Israel, you need to get ready. And what does God say through the prophet to Israel? What would prevent God from smiting the land with a curse? The restoration of household relationships. The hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Do you see how strongly God's heart is inclined toward the home? Household relationships matter to God. There is also a concern for this in Jesus' day. It's repeated in Luke 
Go ahead and turn to Luke 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Here the angel Gabriel is talking to the the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, and he says this to John, about John. And he will turn back the many sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Okay, there it is again. And the disobedient to an attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He was to make certain that Israel did not miss the importance of household relationships. Now let's keep going. I want you to turn to Ephesians 6. And we'll see that God's heart for household relationships continues to be displayed in the New Testament. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, this is a repeat of the fifth commandment. But now it's brought under the authority in the instruction of Christ for his church. This verse also gives us the motivation for obedience. Children, obey your parents. What? In the Lord, not simply from fear of punishment, but out of a reverential love for God. So children need to be taught to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel so that they will be prepared to honor their parents in a way that honors the Lord. Addressing the right heart attitude as well as the right outward action. And parents are to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel, so as not to be frustrating their children. So not only was Israel to demonstrate and to reveal to the nations around them God's heart for household relationships, but now we find in the New Testament that there's a similar instruction to the church regarding household relationships. God has a heart for the household. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. See, the household is so important to God that it's a qualification to be an elder. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? See, it is God's design in the church to have men leading who have trained themselves to oversee their household relationships well. They must lead by example. 
That is how important the household relationships are to God. We cannot walk away from Scripture without understanding God's heart for the household. And that's not just true for men. I want you to turn to Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. These are verses that are familiar to a lot of us. Start in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the younger the young women, and now notice the focus on the household, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. God is making it very clear that a woman's faithfulness in her home is of great importance to the gospel mission of the church. Okay, now it's clear that relationships with husband and children are a part of what's in view here for women who have those relationships. But the kind of character that's described here isn't limited to wives or to mothers. Notice that the older women are to have godly attitudes in speech and in the way that they live so that they are able to teach what is good. And look at what's to be taught to the younger women besides these relationships within their family. They are to be taught self-control, purity, diligence, and kindness. See, these are character qualities that we all need to live out. And they begin in our household. So that God's word is not dishonored. That means to, to speak evil of. See, the consequences of our character and our faithfulness in our home and as in our faithfulness in woman to woman impact how others speak about God's word. It's that important. So, after surveying the Old Testament and then working our way into the New Testament, ladies, how could we not be concerned for our household relationships? This is very near and dear to the heart of God. Okay, now we're going to move on and we're going to look at examples from Scripture of women who understood God's heart in this and then we're going to look at some who didn't. Okay, so I want you to turn back to the Old Testament and look at the book of Ruth. Okay, this book takes place during the time of the Judges. The Judges, the book of Judges end with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wow. That was the spiritual climate. There was no submission to God, no submission to authority, but rather there was the kind of attitude that just said, let's all decide for ourselves what we think is right. That reminds you of our culture? I think it's very similar to our culture today. 
But Ruth was a refreshing exception to that. In Ruth chapter 1, we find a man named Elimelech who takes his wife Naomi and his sons and he moves to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. Then Elimelech dies and after that their sons marry Moabite women and then the sons die. At that point, Naomi hears that the famine was over back in Israel and so she begins to head home. At first, her daughters-in-law desired to go with her, but Naomi actually encourages them to stay in Moab. One of them agrees, but the other one, Ruth, clings to Naomi. Again, Naomi urges her to go back like her sister did, back to her own people and to the Moabite gods. But Ruth responds with a bold declaration of faith. I want you to look at verse 16 of chapter 1. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth didn't want to stay in Moab. She didn't want to go back to her Moabite god to the Moabite gods. Now she makes a bold pronouncement that Naomi's god, Yahweh, the one true god, is now her god. Now listen to what she says next. Verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. Okay, now get, listen to this connection. In Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant being devoted to her mother-in-law. Ruth is a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart for the one true God was first demonstrated by caring for her household, by loving her widowed mother-in-law. The same mother-in-law who told her to go back to Moab and the Moabite gods and to go and find a husband there. The mother-in-law who by her own admission was a bitter woman. We see that when she returns to Bethlehem. And the other woman see her and say, Is this Naomi? And she responds in verse 20 and says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Listen to her words. She wasn't just bitter at her circumstances. She was bitter at God. But this bitter woman is the family that Ruth chooses to love. Let's look at how she cares for Naomi. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 2. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. Now this was a provision under the Mosaic law to care for the poor. 
The poor would come and pick up any leftovers in the field after the harvesters were done. So Naomi agrees and Ruth goes to collect food for them. While she's there collecting food, she meets the landowner, Boaz, and her reputation of integrity precedes her. Look at what Boaz says to Ruth in verses 11 through 12. All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and come to a people that you did not know that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. See, there were two things that Boaz knew about Ruth before he ever met her. First was all that she had done for her mother-in-law, and second, that she sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. You know, I think it's interesting that we actually know very little about Ruth. We do know that she went on to marry Boaz, that they had a son, Obed, who was the grandfather of King David. It really doesn't tell us what kind of a wife she was. We don't know what kind of a mother she was. But what we do know is that when she identified Israel's God, our God, As her own God, she cared for Naomi. Her love for God drove her to love Naomi. I think it's a great connection that we see there about our hearts being connected to loving and caring for those in our household. Now let's look at number three on the outline. And we're going to look at Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family, for the home. There are a number of references there, but we're going to look at the last two. So I'd like for you to turn to 1 Kings 21. We're going to look at Jezebel. And while you're turning there, let me go ahead and walk you through some of the previous passages to give you a little bit of context. Okay, God gave God made David king over all of Israel, all of the 12 tribes after the death of Saul. David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, but after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. Okay, they were divided into the north and the south. The southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. And it was plagued with one bad king after another. So Jezebel now comes into the picture 75 years after the death of Solomon. Jezebel married King Ahab of the northern kingdom. She married, she was the daughter of a foreign king. Now remember, we know from Deuteronomy 7 that God forbade intermarrying with pagan nations. Nonetheless, Ahab married Jezebel and brought her to Israel to be the queen. And with her brought false gods 
and false worship, thus provoking God. Then, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of God. We know that Israel was plagued throughout her history. But, at least most of the time, Israel continued to give God some kind of lip service. Okay, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy the worship of Israel of uh, Yahweh. Then in 1 Kings 21:25, Jezebel finds out that her husband is, it says, sullen and vexed because a man named Naboth would not sell him his vineyard. Okay, so Jezebel, going to take things into her own hands, she schemes to get people to kill Nabal so that Ahab could go and take the vineyard. Now, remember in Israel that the land was supposed to uh, be passed down from one generation to the next generation. It was supposed to stay within the family. That was God's plan. But Jezebel had no regard for the ways of God. She had no regard for the home or the family. In 1 Kings 21-25, it gives a commentary on Ahab after this incident. And that's what I want us to look at right now. So if you'll um, turn there, look at verse 25. It says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And listen to this. Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Wow, what an indictment. Now stop and think about this. One woman is responsible for Baal worship in Israel, for the persecution of God's prophets, for murder, for robbery of a family's inheritance, and inciting the king, her husband, to do evil. And I wish it ended there, but it doesn't. Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah. Athaliah married Jeroboam. Excuse me, Jerem, and sadly, Jezebel's wickedness her influenced and spread through her daughter. And Second Kings eight says Jerem did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, listen to this: because of his wife Athaliah. What kind of evil did he do? Second Chronicles 21 verse 6 tells us that when he'd taken over the kingdom of his father, he killed all of his brothers. Wow. Then Jehoram and Athaliah had a son named Ahaziah. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family. Now think about this. A corrupted husband, murder, robbery, corrupted children, 
a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption of husband and children. Do you see what an antithesis of God's heart for the home that is? God designed the home to be a place where his name is declared, where his mighty works are remembered and praised, where one generation exhorts another generation to love God and to obey him. But this family, this family turns the home into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. They rejected any semblance of God's heart for the home. There is this pervasive, persistent wickedness, and it's spreading. See, we're still not done. Turn to 2 Kings 11. And let's look at chapter 1. In 2 Kings 10, Athaliah's son, King Ahaziah, is killed. Okay, so let's now read what happens next. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all of the royal offspring. Do you understand what this is saying? This is a grandmother who murdered her grandchildren. Why? So that she could have the throne. So that she could be in control. Wow. But at the same time, I think it's easy for us to read this and think, well, that's someone who's way more sinful than we are, right? But really, reading this ought to make us tremble. Because I am reminded that even though God has given me a new heart, I still live in a mixed condition. And I know, I know my heart, I know that I am prone to wander. Though I may not sin in this way to this degree, if I don't stay close to the Lord, if I don't feed on his word consistently, I know that I am far more capable of doing things that I would ever care to admit. See, let's look back. Let's think about this situation and look at it from a heart level. Don't we, at times, desire to control things? Maybe to grasp after something that we want so that we can serve ourselves? See, we can struggle with the same things, with the same sin. And it's destructive. That is why we must shepherd our hearts with God's word and plead with God to give us a heart for our household, one that aligns with God's heart. See, we will impact our households. You know that, right? Each one of us, we will impact our households. The question is, 
how. So let's continue on. Let's look at number four. The ease at which God is forgotten in the home. I want you to go back to Deuteronomy 8. We're going to look at verse 10. Again, just so we stay in context. We're back in Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. Okay, This is just 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt, long before they had a king. And this is Moses' warning to the Israelites. Verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. He's telling Israel, when you are enjoying the blessings of God and things are going well, that is the time for you to be concerned. That's the time that you're going to be tempted to forget God. And how will you know that you've forgotten God? You won't be obeying Him. Look at verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, God is warning them ahead of time. The household that God is giving them, the very place where he blesses them so richly, that household can easily become the very place that forgets God. And they are to be aware of that. They are to guard against that. Just like we need to be aware of that danger. And we need to guard against it so that we don't forget God in our households. Thankfully, in Christ, the household can become a platform for impacting everyone in it with the gospel. Now that could be you, mean your roommates, could mean your children, your parents, your husband. Let's not forget the impact that God has given us there. Okay, we have a great impact into our homes. So we're going to take a quick, maybe five-minute break, and then we'll come back. Start and uh, we're going to start on point number five in our outline, which is the impact of one's faith on the entire household. So I want you to turn to Acts 16 and we're going to look at verse 29. Okay, there's this big uprising in Philippi, beginning in verse 19, and Paul and Silas get thrown into jail. They were beaten with rods. And yet, we find them at, there at night singing hymns and praying. Isn't that encouraging? And then there is this violent earthquake, and all the doors were opened up, and the prisoners' chains came loose, and the Roman guard drew his sword and, began, and started to kill himself because he was sure that all of the prisoners were going to escape 
and he would suffer the consequences of their escaping. But Paul called out and said, Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. So now let's look at Acts 16, starting in verses, verse 29. So he called for lights and rushed in, and tre- trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, this is the jailer, and after he brought, brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the words of the Lord to him together with all of those in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he he was baptized, he and his household, who had heard and believed and were saved. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Wow, what an encouragement that one person coming to faith in Christ can have that kind of an impact on their entire household. And it's a great reminder, ladies, that God can use us in that way. And so we must be putting ourselves under his word and living as his slaves in our household and praying toward that end because there is an attack on the home, which is number six on our outline. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1. See, really, should it surprise us that there would be an attack on the household? If there is this kind of tie between our hearts and our household and what God wants to accomplish, certainly there's going to be an attack there, right? Let's look at verses 1 through 7. Excuse me. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, Again, do you see the concern for the household? Men will be ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power." Avoid such men as these. Why? He explains in verse 6. For among them are those who enter into, into households. And what do they do? They captivate weak women. And what does he mean by weak women in these households? They are women who are always learning and yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Evidently, these women who don't, don't, are women who don't know how the gospel addresses their sin because they're still weighed down by their sin. They are weak and susceptible. Rather than allowing the gospel to dethrone their impulses and their desires, they are being led by those impulses 
and desires. So now here's the question we must ask ourselves after looking at 2 Timothy 3. Who or what is creeping into our homes? In our day, in our generation, what is it? See, our culture has a very strong, loud voice. It comes at us through the TV, through magazines, computers, books, telling us that we are to give in to our impulses and desires, to be lovers of self. And the message that they proclaim is, who do we put first? Ourselves. Put myself first. See, there is a self-centeredness, a self-seeking message out there that is trying to convince us that there is some answer outside of the gospel. Even in a lot of material, I have to say, that cloaks itself, calling it Christian material. And when we're weak, ladies, we can be tempted to follow along without even realizing what we're doing. We are missing the ultimate pleasure found in Him, in knowing our Savior. I want you to turn to Psalm 16, and we're going to look at verse 11. It says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. This is why this fall has been spent talking about Discipline One. Because if we are not women who get Discipline One, if we do not understand how to shepherd our, our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use the gospel to fuel our repentance and growth in holiness, ladies, we can become weak and even gullible. And then we pose a threat to our household. And not only our households, but to the church and actually to the whole ministry of the gospel. See, this is a strong warning. We are vulnerable to believing lies, to accepting the world's standards, and then passing them right along to those who are closest to us, those right in our households. And so we must be on guard against this attack and care and protect those who are living in our household. And I know that many of you are doing so well in this, and I'm so encouraged by that. And yet we still need to hear and to heed this warning. And there's another warning. We also must guard against exalting the household above the gospel. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at verses um, 34 through 38. This is number 7 in our outline. The family, the home can actually become an obstacle to the gospel. 
Listen to the priority that Jesus makes so clearly here. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves his father or another more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. See, Jesus is making a strong point here that the gospel of the kingdom is first. It's first and everything else is second, including our families. When we come to Christ, we are called to bring the gospel to our family. And there are times when we do that, that we might actually find that members of our households become our enemies. I know that was true for me. And if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, that believer must follow Christ and not family. Even while she stays in the family, seeking to display the changes that Christ has made in her, as she loves and serves her family and forgives and seeks forgiveness in that family, submitting appropriately. The family and household relationships are under the gospel. Jesus did this in Matthew 12. He was with his disciples. He had gone days without eating, and his family came looking for him, thinking that he'd lost his mind. And so they came to rescue him. And what did Jesus say when he found his family, that his family was waiting for him outside? In verse 50, he said, Whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, Jesus is helping us understand household relationships in their proper relationship with our kingdom identity. Now, what practical difference does this make? One way, way may be that if I put this upside down, if I put my identity in Christ under my family identity, then I might find myself thinking or saying things like, that's just the way I was raised. It's the way we've always done it. See, sometimes clinging to family traditions and, and, my fa- and our family's ways may in reality actually simply be an excuse for sin. Or, if you have a family from a false religion, you may have to make some hard decisions with love and with grace, remembering that you are Christ's first. Putting our identity in Christ under our family identity will cause us to be tempted to put our identity as wife and mom first. But that's not God's priority, is it? 
No, he makes it clear that I must place my household identity under my identity in Christ. When I do that, it is Christ's work in me that gets brought into my household and not the other way around. Our identity in Christ is greater than our family identity. Okay, that needs to be the direction of our influence. There is no better way to love those in our household than to keep our affections for Christ first in our hearts. And what a great reminder that the gospel enables us to do that, to shine the light of Christ in the midst of our family, even if we're the only believer there. Okay, let's now turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to look at at, uh, verses 22 through 24 on number 8 on the outline. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. Okay, everyone needs to understand this. Whether you have a husband right now or not, and you'll see why as we go through it. When we think of marriage, we need to think about Christ and the church. That should be the first thing that we think of. So that we are all women who are building up marriages. Who are treasuring marriages, encouraging marriages in how we think, how we talk, regardless of whether or not we're married. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But the church is to is subject to Christ. So also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So if the church's submission to Christ is the model of a wife's submission to her husband, we need to understand the nature of that submission. Believers submit to Christ in light of all that has been done for us in the gospel. Okay, Christ shed his blood. God's wrath was poured out on Christ in our place. And now there is no wrath left to be poured out on us if we belong to him. He made us new creatures with new desires and a new heart for Christ. And as new creatures now, we find submitting to his authority to be a joy. He equips us to submit to him. He pulls us out from under his judgment and places us under his headship. That's where we find his protection in his care. So in that light, we now understand submission. It's a joy. And it's where we find our protection. And that is the kind of submission that he tells us that we are to bring into marriage. A woman looks beyond her husband to Christ. We submit to Christ And we submit to our husbands. If you're married, your husband is your leader. And when we struggle to to trust him as our earthly leader, 
we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He's sovereign and he is good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands and where we encourage one another to rest our confidence. So you don't have to be married to encourage a married woman in this. We need, all of us need this kind of encouragement. So finally, let's go to number nine on on our outline, a New Testament model marriage. We're going to look at Priscilla and Aquila. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18. It shows us that Priscilla and Aquila partnered with Paul in the gospel. Okay, later in that chapter, they met Apollos, who had an incomplete view of the gospel. And they were able to help this brother, who was deficient in doctrine. And Priscilla was right there with her husband, helping to equip Apollos, who was then sent off and was useful for the gospel. We see that we see again in Romans 16, 3 through through 5, that Paul gives thanks for many of the Christians that he knows. And Priscilla and Aquila are among them. They were committed to partner in order to see the gospel progress. So what do we see in all of this? What is the heart of God for our households? We've seen that the woman who loves God places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for Jesus Christ and for the gospel. It is our responsibility to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household to protect our household from any wrong thinking that could come in and deceive and mislead our families. So ladies, we have to stop and ask this question. What is the spiritual climate of your home? Have you grasped God's heart for your household relationships? Do you take your role seriously before God? There is much at stake as we think about the next generation and the reputation of God's word. Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and his gospel work. Let me quickly read, and it's at the end of uh, your notes there. I think this is so great. It's a quote from Council of the Cross by Elise Fitzpatrick. And it's how she ends the chapter on the gospel in our relationships. The gospel changes everything about us. Most particularly, it changes how we love and treat others. Soaking ourselves in the astounding love of God for me weak and sinful as we are, will cause us to become people who love the pure, undefiled Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ, 
was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It should be obvious that he loves sinners because he loved us. Living in the light of this truth will enable us to love. It will remove all of our self-righteousness and craving for respect. It will free us to lay down our lives and not keep running tally, a running tally of who sins most or who serves most. And it will make us patient and gentle. The gospel is the environment for all our relationships. The gospel teaches us to love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would strive for this kind of love. Father, would you develop this kind of love in our hearts? Would you help us to labor and apply ourselves and take every opportunity that you give us to love those that you have placed in our household. Father, we want to remember that our hope is in your grace, which you have lavished upon us. Father, we need to be reminded that the same grace that saved us is the same grace that sanctifies us and the same grace that is going to cause us to love those in our household. Father, help us to remember your heart for the household. You have much to say to us in your word about it, and I pray that we would be able to connect our heart with our household and that we would be faithful to you to love those there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.